Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and the producer of Kunenitsya, The Well, a monthly podcast series about Ukrainians and topics of interest to them around the world. Today is Tuesday, October 1st, 2019. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Christian Raffensperger, who is Department Chair and Associate Professor of History with Wittenberg University in Ohio. Welcome, Dr. Raffensperger. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and it's great to have you, and thank you for agreeing to attend. So I want to point out to our listeners that you have been involved in um, research of the of Kievan Rus for a number of years, and you have many articles and several books under your belt at this point. And how I met you is recently you gave a webinar for my Nashi Predki genealogy group about your 2016 books, Ties of Kinship, Genealogy and Dynastic Marriage in Kievan Rus. And the webinar is absolutely fascinating, including some of your digital efforts, which include a digital map of uh, dynastic relationships, as well as a database online. So with that introduction, I'd like to find out, first of all, why and how you got involved with all of this. All right. So, you know, it goes back to actually being a little kid. Um, And as a kid, I played with knights and castles. I was one of those kids. Uh, And then I developed an interest in Eastern Europe and Eastern European history uh, because when I was in high school, it was the time when the Soviet Union was coming apart, and that was completely fascinating to watch all of the dynamic changes that were happening. And I pursued those paths relatively separately in uh, college, and I was very lucky. My uh, stepmother at the time was doing business in Russia, and so she took me along on a business trip, and I just thought it was tremendous. And then in I think it was the junior year of my college, I took a class on the Vikings with Michael Jones, and this was at Bates College. And in discussing the Vikings, my interests of knights, castles, medieval history, and Eastern Europe came together when I learned about the Rus and the expansion of Scandinavians into the Eastern European river systems, which created the ruling family and the basis for the medieval kingdom of Rus. And I thought, this is it. This is the the culmination of my interests. Uh, I wrote a thesis on it at Bates College, and eventually, uh, after some uh, other life interruptions, I went to graduate school, and that's what I've been doing ever since. And on our webinar for Nashi Pritki, you mentioned that you very often get contacted by people who claim to have some connection with some of the nobility of Kevin Rus. Absolutely. Um, So you mentioned the online resources. And so one of those is the Rusian Genealogical Database, um, and the other is the MAPA project for the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. And the MAPA project not only has medieval things, it has things relating to Holodomor uh, and a whole variety of modern Ukrainian political situations. And these are accessible to anyone on the internet. And so people find them, uh, especially when they're searching topics of Ukrainian interest. And they begin going through and finding things. And then I get an email in my inbox saying, you know, I am a 18 times or something descendant of Yaroslav Svetopolchich or uh, Volodymyr Svetoslavich. And, you know, I've traced my genealogy. and, And so it's really interesting because this is history to me. But for a lot of people out there, this is also part of them tracing and finding their family connections all the way back to the medieval period. 
And I understand you're an associate with the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. That's right. I was on sabbatical um, a few years ago, 2013-14, and I had a fellowship there. And since then, I've been affiliated with it, and they've generously funded this uh, MAPA project that I was a part of. They have uh, had me out to give talks. It's one of the oldest Ukrainian studies organizations uh, at an institution in the United States, and it does a a great deal of wonderful work for promoting uh, Ukrainian studies in the United States. So let's circle back now to ties of kinship. I know you went into a lot of detail on the webinar, but could you kind of summarize what the book covers? Absolutely. So this is a book about, as the subtitle which you read says, um, Dynastic Marriage and Genealogy in Kiev and Rus. And so I focus on Vladimir Sviatoslavich, so this is the Christianizer, uh, and his family for several generations, round about to the early part of the 13th century. And in the book, what you can see are 22 genealogical tables, uh, and those tables detail all of the people, uh, where they rule, the marriages that they make, the children that they have, and it's also all cited. So there's a piece of information like uh, ruler of Kiev from this date to that date, and then I give you the source information for where I found that date of rulership. And the reason I think this is particularly important is because historians, just like certified genealogists always have to cite their sources, and you have to have good information to find out who lived when, who married whom, um, who their children were, all of that sort of thing. So this is a resource and a reference in many ways. It's also a book about dynastic marriage, though, and so I take some time, and about half of the book is devoted to the marriages that are made from roughly Volodymyr Sviatoslavich in the late 10th century until the middle of the 12th century. And I talk about those marriages because those are really the, I often say, the warp and weft of medieval politics. They're what make the political world happen in medieval Europe. But for our interest, it's also what connects Kievan Rus into the rest of medieval Europe because those marriages happen with the ruling families in the German Empire, in France, in Norway, in Hungary, in Poland. Um, there are Anglo-Saxon kings who end up exiled in Rus. Um, there's connections to the medieval Roman Empire, better known as Byzantium. Um, there are connections that tie even this Eastern Kingdom into the entirety of Christian medieval Europe. And so I think that's particularly important to talk about. And how does this tie in with your online database and your online genealogy map? Those are utilizing the same data set. So the nice thing about the print edition um, is that you can see the genealogical charts. Uh, I really like that, and I haven't been able to replicate that online yet. But Utilizing that same data set, I've put online a searchable linked database of all of those same marriages. And that's actually, as much as I love books and I love print, an even more useful resource because you can get at information in a whole variety of different ways. If you were just interested, for instance, in uh, Galicia, right, you could just look at rulers of Galicia right? Halic. Um, If you were just interested in Kiev, uh, if you were just interested in Novgorod, you could sort by that. If you want to sort sort chronologically, you can sort chronologically. If you are following some random series of people, you can do that. 
or if you're doing research into an ancestor, you can find that person and linked on the same page as their father and their mother, and you could click and follow that. And from that page, you could click and follow to their father and mother, and you could just follow right along just by clicking. So actually, the online presence is much more useful in many ways and for many people. The other thing I would add is that, and I, this is rare, you're going to find a scholar admitting errors, there might be mistakes in the book. I admit it. Oh, no. I know. I know. It's horrible. And I can't correct the book until there's a new edition. But I get emails from people sometimes saying, you know, this piece of information you have for this particular person, I don't think is correct. I think it's, you know, 1017, not 1016. And so I follow up on what they say. And if I think that, yes, that that's in fact correct, I can actually change the database so the online materials are corrected. And that's been really nice because it's allowed me to engage and interact with people all over the world who are utilizing this as a tool for their own research or in their classrooms. And they're spotting things. And, and making changes. And so I think that that's a lot of fun. And so where can our listeners find these tools online? So I can post the URLs to a particular place, but the, the MAPA project at HURI, the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, if you just search MAPA and HURI, H-U-R-I, that will turn that up on Google. And the other one uh, is the Russian Genealogical Database. And I'm very clear in my work, I try to be very clear in my work that I'm talking about Rus, certainly not talking about Russia. Um, and so I utilize Russian as the, the adjectival form. Uh, so if you search the Russian genealogical database, that will turn that up as well. The URL for that is genealogy.updurodon.org. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other books that you published? Yeah, the one I've published uh, relatively recently that I think is really accessible, or at least I've meant it to be accessible, is a book called The Kingdom of Rus. And it's a small book, by which I mean it's actually a small format. Um, so it's kind of like a pocket-sized sort of book. And it's relatively short. So it's about 100 pages. And it's a straightforward argument in a series that is designed for interested readers who are not necessarily experts. So you don't have to have a PhD in Slavic history or linguistics to, to read this book. And The Kingdom of Rus talks talks about how Rus is situated in a broader medieval European world, but then it actually makes an argument as well. And the argument is that the kingdom of Rus is in fact a kingdom. Typically, when you read about Rus, you'll read about the princes of Rus or the grand prince of Rus. Um, in older scholarship, it would be the duke or the grand duke, but I get into what we use and why we use those titles and demonstrate that, in fact, these are modern accretions. These are modern titles that we're giving to them. And in fact, in the medieval world, uh, in Latin sources, all of these rulers of Rus are in fact called Rex, king. And in those Latin sources, when they call a ruler Rex, in English that's translated as king, except when they call it the Rex Rusorum, the king of the Rus, when the translator will translate it as prince. And so it leads to some really interesting permutations when you read translated editions and then go look at the original text. So I think this is one of those things that is little on its face, 
What does it matter if it's prince or king? But actually quite large in its ramifications, because if we're talking in English about the king of France and the emperor of the German Empire and the prince of Rus, well, we create a mental picture in our head that is stepping down from emperor to king to prince. However, if the king of France is a king, Rex Francorum, and the king of Rus is a king, Rex Rusorum, then these two are on a level. And this changes all sorts of things about our ability to interpret what happened. So there's a great marriage from the middle of the 11th century where the king of Rus, Yaroslav, marries his daughter Anna to the king of France, Henry. And when we talk about it as the king of Rus and the king of France, this lends a different authority to what happened than the king of France and the prince of Rus. And in fact, many medieval historians who've talked about this marriage talk about it as an oddity. And they'll even use that word, um, that the king of France was looking for something exotic, another word that they'll actually use. Uh, And so he goes all the way to Rus in the Far East. But we don't get that same feeling when we're simply talking about marriages between kings, because uh, that little change in title and titulature actually bears a lot of fruit in terms of how we understand that larger situation. We're almost out of time, Dr. Roffensperger, but I'd like to ask you one last question. So what's next in your research? Next, I want to talk about government. Um, One of the things that Roos gets kind of classified as in medieval studies is chaotic. It falls apart. It's not unified. There's an internecine war or civil war. And in fact, I don't really think that's the case. Um, I think what we've constructed is a model where governments are slowly unifying and becoming more cohesive, and really that that's based around England in the 12th and 13th centuries, but isn't seen in the rest of Europe. And so I'd like to point out that, in fact, what's going on in Rus in the 12th and 13th centuries is like what's going on in much of Europe. And our model is what's wrong. Because if we can stop talking about Rus as continually in the midst of a bloody civil war, which is things that are said, um, maybe we can talk about it as a normal polity, a normal state. And if we can talk about it as a normal state, maybe we can talk about it in the same breath as Hungary, as the German Empire, as France. And it can assume what I think is its rightful place in medieval Europe alongside other, all of these other medieval polities and not off as some eastern other uh, on the periphery. So that sounds like a topic for a new book. I'm working on it. Good to hear. We have been speaking with Dr. Christian Raffensperger, the department chair and associate professor of history at Wittenberg University in Ohio. Thank you, Dr. Raffensperger. Thank you, Mike, for having me, and thank you all for listening. This is Mike Burek, your host and the producer of Kanenitsia, The Well, a monthly podcast series about Ukrainians and topics of interest to Ukrainians around the world. Until next time, that's all for now.